Take your seat, movie fans. The film is about to start. Welcome back to Craft to Services, the show where we look at the bad films of cinematic history, the movies that critics rejected but audiences embraced. I'm your host, Aaron Coker, a.k.a. Caliban, and I'm also the host of the Just Enough Trope podcast and the Enterprising Individuals podcast on this, the Just Enough Trope Network. Find out more at justenoughtrope.com. Joining me on the show today is John Edward Moret. John is the programmer for Trilon Cinema, a 92-seat theater in Minneapolis, Minnesota, that specializes in repertory showings of classic, cutting-edge, foreign, and arthouse films. John, welcome to the show. Oh, thanks so much for having me. Thanks for being here. Any Twin Cities film fan worth their salt and of a certain age will have a special place in their heart for the words Oak Street Cinema. And it's my understanding that the Trilon came about partially because of the demise of Oak Street? Yeah, so uh, so I was actually in college at the time and was a regular at the Oak Street. But as the MSPF, or the Film Society, um, at the time uh, sort of bonded together with the Oak Street, and they sort of joined forces as an organization, and as the board sort of changed more MSPF-friendly and less Oak Street-friendly, uh, they started seeing less and less value in the building itself and more and more value in the festival and started seeing kind of the, the numbers of the repertory cinema, you know, aren't, are just enough to keep the cinema open, but not enough to really turn a lot of profit. Sure. So they decided to do away with the Oak Street and continue with the film festival. And out of that, the, the, bitter, the embittered employees and volunteers of the Oak Street sort of <laughs> started their own thing. <laughs> and, and, and what happened was Barry, the executive director of, of the Trilon, started just showing movies anywhere he could. It was in alleyways, behind coffee shops, uh, finally ended up at the parkway for a little while and then sort of moved to the Riverview and the Heights and was kind of just doing one-off film noir type stuff. We started We started a Hitchcock series uh, that we are now in our, God, 11th year, I think, next year. Anyway, um, and so every time we do that, I mean, we just make a killing. And we sort of just kind of put the money away. And the, the original iteration of the Trilon cost us about $30,000, which I think was about four years of programming and kind of saving every penny. Yeah. And then, um, so we were there for, uh, we were there from 2009 until this last year, and then we did a, a, a renovation this summer and doubled, or almost doubled in time. Yeah, so you just had an expansion. Can you tell me um, what, what you've added at the theater? Yeah, so, um, yeah, I spent every waking moment that I wasn't with my kids at the theater this summer with Barry. Um, we, so what we found was our ceiling was not high enough to add bleachers uh-huh. um, or risers, which would then allow us to add more seats. Right. So we sort of thought we were stuck. Plus there was a giant pillar right in the middle of the building. <laughs> um, and, and so the old space, what we did was we actually had the screen sort of pushed up against that pillar. So it was as big as it could possibly be without you know, going past the pillar. Right. And unfortunately you can't project through a pillar, which is frustrating. So <laughs> right. we were like, we're not sure what to do here. So what we ended up doing was uh, we had the idea that if you moved the pillar over about six feet, then you could dig into the ground because if we couldn't go up, well, maybe we could go down. Okay. So what we ended up doing was um, uh, we had a structural engineer come in, and they moved uh, our pillar, which holds our roof up, over about six feet, and then brought a, a beam that weighs like 2,000 pounds up over top. And that holds the roof up now. And then, uh, and then we brought in some digging machines, and they went to work. Huh. And it was, I mean, it was kind of astonishing to watch them in that small space. You know, like, they're, it was pretty wild. They never hit the ceiling or anything. <laughs> but so we had a giant dirt hole for about mm, six weeks. Okay. As we waited for things to move, my kids were in love with that dirt hall. They were so sad when it was filled with concrete. <laughs> yeah. Um, but so now, so then, uh, so then we put in four rows uh, of, of concrete risers um, down at the bottom. Okay. Which which allowed us to make the screen larger uh, as far as we go up and down. Yeah. Our scope image, which is uh, two three five, which is sort of if you watch your television at home and there's bars on the top and bottom. Right. That's called scope, and so that image is actually the exact same size because our because our our screen is the same width, but as far as height is, it's almost twenty percent bigger. So our 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 flat image, which is like your sixteen nine full screen TV, yeah. is huge. Um, I think for the space, at least, it's not huge as far as 
screens go. But well, yeah. Um, and then so then we added new seats, carpeting, new masking, and then um, the other thing that's really beneficial to us, which you know I think customers probably enjoyed, but was just really helpful for like rentals where we make a lot of our money is our concession stand uh-huh. um, was about mm, twenty square feet before. Right. And and now um, our our lobby area has been moved to the opposite side of the building. So it's it's much larger. It's much more conducive to a crowd. Sure. Yeah. Um, so it's it's just it's just a much better experience in general. Um, you know, we're still we're still breaking it all in. It still feels a little bit um, Apple Store soulless esque. But we're <laughs> sure. as we put up more posters and more holes in walls and everything it's, it's getting better and better it feels more and more like home all the time sure and like all told what was the turnaround like how long were you dark for um we closed june 15th and our first show was september 21 okay i think right. so about four months yeah we we're scheduled to open in august but um a, a contractor that will not be named decided that he was going to bid it out and then claim to do it and then not show up for two weeks. So that, kinda, okay. <laughs> you know, that happens. Yeah. Yeah. That happens. Uh, well, anyway, you're, you're back with, uh, with force now. And I know that you've got some great stuff coming up, uh, in December and in the new year, uh, like, uh, an RKO noir series, uh, some yeah. Shaw brothers, Kung Fu. You've got an Alan Ladd, Veronica Lake triple feature. I'm really looking forward to, and you've got a Nicholas Cage double feature coming up. Yes. Yes, we do. I, 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 I've always kind of wanted to do a Nicolas Cage series, but as I wa- watched them again, I was like, well, there's some really good ones. Yeah. There's two I really love, right? Sure. Like, and so we just decided we're going to do two that we really love, and we're doing it with an organization called the Cult Film Collective, and uh-huh. their thing is they go find prints when prints are hard to find. Okay, so, sure. So it's, um, it's actually me and another friend who just put our own money into something. Um, and sort of what we do is um, we... We just we look at stuff and say, well, this could easily be shown by the trial in any way. Yeah. But if we want to show it on a 35 millimeter print, uh, it's going to be tricky. And in this case, it was tricky because Fox no longer has their own print, um, which is annoying of raising Arizona. Yeah. Huh. And uh, um, and the Park Circus only has an X-rated print, which is pink and really scratched so it was an element of like well okay so now we got to go hunting for collectors and archives right so that that's sort of what that whole process is okay uh, um yeah the nicholas cage one i'm very excited and the shaw brothers stuff um all the shaw brothers films uh, are going to be on 35 and they are actually from a cinema in british columbia called shaw cinema uh <laughs> that closed in 1987 i think Okay. It shuttered and it was just empty um, and was not show, showing anything for almost 20 years. And a friend of mine named Dan, uh, he's a film collector out in Portland, and he's the um, programmer for the Hollywood. He actually searches for these things. So he contacted Shaw Studios, and they sent him a key and said, go ahead and go explore. <laughs> and, and, and so he, um, he actually broke in underneath the, the stage that they had and found 500 prints. Oh, wow. Uh, um, I think only about 50 of them were playable. Um, most of them were damaged, but some of the best ones were in the almost mint condition. So we're showing 36 Chamber of Shaolin, 8 Diagram Pole Fighter, uh, Bastard Swordsman, and The Kid with a Golden Arm, all of which were in that cinema. Sure. Um, so that's really, really exciting for me. Because um, I've, I've seen them on, you know, bootleg DVD and... Yeah, right. Yeah. Uh, you, you know, and now Blu-ray, but to, to see them on film, I just, I can't wait. I'm so excited. Yeah, that's amazing. Uh, you focus on like like classic films and uh, foreign and art house films. Is there anything that you wouldn't show that's really not on your programming? Uh, we don't do any new films. Okay. Um, we are we are strictly repertory, so we get lots and lots of of requests to show like the new blank, right? Like, will you be showing the new uh, Steven Soderbergh movie? And it's like, no, we don't do that. We we are strictly repertory. Um, you know, we may go as close as the last three or four years if, if I feel like the film's appropriate. Right. But I'm trying to, to sort of stick to anything pre-2010 now. Okay, okay. Um, and usually I don't even go up really past 2001, 2002. Um, I sort of got it in my in my head. I really want to do um, In the Mood for Love. So eventually I'll oh, be doing okay. some, some of Wong Kar Wai's films. But um, as far as newer films, it, 
you know, I think they're really well covered if you go to Landmark or you go to the Film Society or you go to the Walker. And you can definitely see those films around town. Um, and I think actually what our space is great for is doing something different and, and sort of capturing uh, the way that movies used to be yeah. um, a little bit. We, you know, we, we rarely ever have anyone presenting. Um, we try not to have, you know, people in front of the audience too much. We like it to just be like when you went to a movie a long time ago. You walked in, you watch the trailer, and there it goes. Sure. I think the new space provides us room to kind of start inviting back fans of really classic films. So like you mentioned, the Ellen Ladd, Veronica Lake triple feature. And right. I'm really hoping that stuff, you know, and the Gloria Graham stuff, I hope that, you know, 30s and 40s cinema, like I hope that those lovers can kind of come back. I think the old trilons started to feel a little bit clubhouse-ish. Okay. We were so small. Um, we were so small and so, uh, what's the word? I mean, I loved it, but it, it, you know, it's kind of speakeasy-ish almost. Yeah, yeah. And and I think that older audiences felt a little uncomfortable there. So we found that we didn't do that well when we showed classic cinema. Okay. Um, and I think this provides us room to sort of invite those people back and be like, it's more of a movie theater, right? Like, it's not. Yeah, sure. <laughs> uh, you know, you know, it's less of a clubhouse and more of a we're just showing movies, and this is a you know a space that's we want to be safe for everybody. Sure. Um, you know, because I, cause I think what we'd gotten into was we would do really, really well with, you know, Grindhouse or Kung Fu or yeah, right. horror or anything like that. But um, as soon as we pushed into something that older audiences would be more interested in, younger people wouldn't, that, those wouldn't do that well. Yeah. So I'm hoping that we can kind of lean the programming so we capture both those people. Because what I'd really love is I'd love for people to start mixing as audiences. You know, I'd love sure, for yeah. fans of Kung Fu to come see you know, like the Nicolas Cage stuff and then <laughs> come see, come see playtime, right? Like we're going to be showing uh, Jacques Tati's masterpiece on 35. <laughs> sure. The same day we're showing 36 chamber of Shaolin. And it, I just can't imagine how amazing that double feature would feel, you know, like on Super Bowl Sunday, instead you're going to watch some <laughs> right. Fu and some French comedy, you know? I, so we'll see. We'll see how it goes. That sounds cool. Well, uh, where, if listeners want to find out more about the Trilon, where can they go? Uh, Trilon.org. Okay, well, check that out. Uh, the film that we're looking at today is a film that uh, defies description, I think, in a lot of ways, and is unique. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and I wonder uh, if you would consider programming it at the Trilon sometime. It's a type of film that I sort of recommend it because I was like, I don't know if I'll ever be able to show this <laughs> or talk about this if it's not with you. I don't know when else I would get the opportunity. Sure. Um, you know, it, it's the type of film that I think perhaps there's an audience for, like, Stacey Keach movies. Uh, or or Mariana Hill or something, but right. I'm not sure. I'm not sure we. It, it's the type of thing I would love to show, but I'm not sure it has an audience. We'll see. <laughs> uh, well, I probably would have come out for a Stacey Keach movie, but that's just me. He's kind of the best. <laughs> he is pretty good, definitely in this film. Uh, yeah. Well, we're talking about a film called The Traveling Executioner from 1970. And, uh, I, I mean, it's it's hard to really get a hold of it. I mean, I guess I'd call it a comedy, like a black comedy for sure. Yeah, you're right. It does. It, it is a black comedy. Yeah. But I guess I, if I was describing it to someone, I wouldn't tell them it was funny. Yeah, no. <laughs> you know, it's not funny. It's it's just, yeah, yeah. It certainly falls into that sort of niche of early 70s films where it's just kind of... Yeah. You know, it's out there, and it's sort of um, not necessarily um, trying to fit on one of the quadrants. You know, it's just sort of bringing you a unique kind of story. Yeah, absolutely. When I, and I think what, what's so great about the 70s in the U.S. is, uh, you know, late 60s cinema, the the studios were, were faltering. Like, yeah. they had no idea what to do. Um, none of the things that they were doing felt that unique. None of them were making money. It was just a giant mess. And so they started really taking a lot of chances and they took a lot of chances on small films. Um, and I think because of that, so many movies from the seventies from the U S are incredible. Like yeah. the, you know, and it's, it's, it's people from the new left, uh, not a part of the system sort of working, you know, either out of UCLA film school or whatever. And then they just sort of start creating these original stories and they're, and for small budgets, uh, with, you know, the possibility of, not losing much money because you're not spending much. Yeah, right. Um, and so because of that, you do get weird stuff like the traveling executioner that is just kind of this one-off weird 
random story that really, you like you were saying, it only makes sense as a 1970s American film. <laughs> right. Like, you can't imagine any other time this movie could be made. It's yeah. only them, like at that moment in history. And it never did find an audience, you know, like, yeah. it, um, but it didn't need to so much. You know, I mean, you can tell, like, okay, Jack Smite and Stacey Keach and Mariana Hill, like, it's not like they're going all out on the budget here to get big names of anybody. Right. <laughs> and, there's, and, and, you know, they, they go to a prison... You know, you can tell they shot on site. You know, like there's not a huge amount of work put into to set pieces or costuming or it's, yeah. yes. I mean, it's a it's, just, the... it's a small <laughs> small little production. Right? Yeah, a lot of the costuming is either uh, right on the nose or totally off. Um, the, it, yes. it's it's sort of like. Uh, stagey costume drama like he's got like a scarf yeah. and a hat and a coat and then there's one scene yeah. in the prison yard where he walks in and he's got like a tan leather jacket with like huge lapels on that looks like he just wore it to set <laughs> yeah I mean exactly it's it's like he's like well and it's supposed to be like 1989 yeah right <laughs> yes exactly yeah and, yeah and the amazing thing about this movie too I mean you know they're, they they place it in 1918 at um, uh, and, and I guess I you know your audience probably doesn't understand what the movie's about because no one knows this well, movie. Give us, but a, 28... give us a synopsis, a short synopsis. Yeah. So, so in 1918, uh, it, it follows a character named Jonas Candide, played by Stacey Keach, and he travels uh, the country with his electric chair. And he's got an electric chair in his truck, and it's kind of like a moving truck. And he just goes from prison to prison, uh, electrocuting people on death row. Right. And so, and so the, the film begins with um, Mariana Hill, and she is the first woman to be up for the electric chair. And it's interesting that they place it in 1918, and she plays a German character. Right. Um, because, you know, the, the U.S. at the time was at war with Germany, and they don't really tell you what exactly she's being executed for her and her brother are both on death row right and they're germans and so you sort of get the sense that you know perhaps they are spies perhaps they've murdered someone uh you know you don't really quite get a sense of what what went down but it's an interesting like it what what i love about that is you don't get a sense in your head about who she is you sort of only get a sense of who that character is by how she acts from here on out and, and you don't condemn her for her crime because you don't know what it is. And I think that's sort of brilliant. Like, it, it puts you in a place where you don't either root for her or against her based on her past. Right? And, and, and it's an interesting way of doing a character that's sort of a really central to how Jonas does the rest of his, you know, the rest of the film. Yeah, and he's somebody who um, the the film I think without being too heavy handed is um, sort of looking at a lot of these institutions of society like being poor or having money or being yeah. white or being yeah. black, and we've got Jonas who starts off the film with you know in his own way um, he's experiencing a lot of privilege, and then you've got this white woman being led into this prison like all male, male prison in the South, yeah, uh, yeah. It, it, you know, and it's not a good situation, you know, for her. No, no. Right. I mean, you know, she's she's sort of paraded past yeah. uh, the yard. Right. Like so. So she goes through um, the entire prison. And as she goes, you know, like he, obviously all the men are hooting and hollering because that's how prisons are presented in movies. <laughs> right. Um, but it, it's interesting because it, it does feel a little bit like you fear for her. Right. Like you're like whatever she's done, this is horrifying. Yeah, like, yeah. She, and then she starts going up the steps into her cell and the guard puts his hand on, on, on her and you're like, this is a little strange. And then he sort of slides his hand down to her butt and you're like, this is really creepy. Yeah. Like this, she's in a situation where no one will protect her. Yeah. And, and her survival is only, you know, will she be assaulted before she's murdered? Yeah. And or the, before she's executed, right? right? Like that's the only, that's her choice. And the place that we come in as the audience, it becomes completely immaterial, at least for us, what she did do. Now she is in this you know, right. victim in this situation where we just want to kind of see her survive. That's right. That's right. And it, and it is it's it's a it's a really striking way of doing a beginning of film that is, you know, it's about the executioner. But this scene is always in the back of your head when you're thinking about her. <laughs> I know. Right? And, yeah, and it opens, and this is the first couple of minutes, and then we go right into Jerry Goldsmith's jug band. Yes, yes, <laughs> and totally. And suddenly I mean, it's really light-spirited. Light 
Yes, and, and, and it's funny because the music is like, the music is cueing you for like, this is a dark comedy. Right. And you're like, well, <laughs> I'm still feeling pretty down about what's happening. Yeah. <laughs> and, then, and then I feel like, and then the great moment, so Stacey Keats then drives up in his, his big truck and, and he's, he's ready to, to execute her, right? And he's got his new hat and he bought a new coat for the, for the event and he's got his big scarf. And, you know, it's, 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 a, really, it's a really interesting beginning to a film. And I think, I think the, the, so what happens next, and I think to me the reason I really have kind of always defended that this movie should be seen, and I don't think I'd ever defend that it's like a brilliant film, but uh-huh. it's, it's worth watching. And I think a big part of it is that first 20 minutes, because I think there's then, then you get the moment where he walks in her brother yeah, and he meets her brother and, uh, and it's Willie, right? Is that his name? Uh, I I believe so. so. Yeah. Yeah. And so, and so he walks him in and he sits him down in the electric chair and he, and Stacey Keach gives this monologue and it's beautiful. And you know, it's what it's, lasts almost 10 minutes yeah it's really slow paced it's really well done he's slowly strapping him in and he's telling him about uh the fields of ambrosia and how the greeks you know didn't believe that the things you did in this life matter and you know it's only what comes from here now it's like right you know and i just i think that's really really fascinating um to, to do a film that way right to kind of he puts this guy at ease and then he walks out to his truck and he puts on this big goofy magician's coat yeah, <laughs> and, and lights up his truck and then just executes this, this guy, you know? And it's like, yeah. wow, that is, you know, you go through this whirlwind of like, whose team are you on? What, like what, what's going on here? Right. And I, I, it's, it's really, really fascinating. You know, and then it cuts to him eating this giant meal. Yeah. <laughs> and, and it's just this huge amount of food, right? Like there's like, a bunch of pieces of ham and bread and he's got these biscuits and coffee and it's just this huge thing. Right. And this guy comes running in and tells him that it didn't work. You know, Willie's not dead. This is, this is why I love the seventies because a film now it would make, it would make the point that like, okay, the music now needs to be either <laughs> sentimental or it needs to be this. And we have to like, and instead it's like he dives up on the table and runs as fast as he can. And <laughs> right. You know, and you get this chaos. Sense of like, Yes, it's total chaos, yeah. and, and and you're not sure if he's running because he feels that he hasn't done his job right, which he takes very seriously, right? Or if he feels terrible because he promised this guy that he'd <laughs> this be out of pain and be done. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. You know, and and so they're trying to strap him back in the chair and re re electrocute him, and somebody straps G, you know Stacy Keach's leg against his leg, so he's also strapped to the electric chair, right. and it's just total madness. <laughs> um, and I just think that this whole opening. Uh, really is what I think a film like this has to offer, right? It's like you will be thrown around yes. a lot and and not know what to expect now. Yeah, you're not going to come in. Here's another hour. Yeah, you're not, you're not going to see, you know, uh, what you'd... You, you can't come in and just expect this to be one thing or the other. This is going to be a couple different right. things, and that's kind of its charm. Right. Usually at some point in the show, I, I reiterate that the show is called Craft of Services, and uh, on every show, we look at a film that's poorly rated, generally lower than 50% on Rotten Tomatoes, but one that's generally well-remembered. Or in this case, one that's barely remembered at all, but perhaps that's a crime sure. in itself. And before we start, I usually say that we are not in the pocket of Big Tomato. Uh, we don't endorse Rotten <laughs> Tomatoes. Uh, we just use it as a metric in this case. As somebody in the movie sure. business, what's your opinion of review sites like Rotten Tomatoes? Well, I mean, I think, I think you know, I, I think as an audience we now have so much information, right? Yeah. Like there's so much thrown at you and there's, there's so many films and you have access to so many things now. Uh, it's no longer a, 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 you know, an Ebert situation where you just get a thumbs up, thumbs down <laughs> right. for this stuff coming out. And, and, and so I, I do think like Rotten Tomatoes is, is a fine metric, I think to use as like a, you know, what do people generally think about this movie? I think I tend to, to look at Metacritic as well. Yeah. Um, you know, when I'm when I'm looking for for films that I want to program at the theater, I often look at you know if I if I'm really interested in someone like let's say I'm really interested in Veronica Lake, and I look and I see oh my God she's in 75 films. <laughs> if I want to do a Veronica Lake series and break it down to four, what 15 Veronica Lake films should I watch? 
Yeah. Um, and so what I often do is I often look at the highest rated on IMDb, the highest rated on Metacritic, and the highest rated on Rotten Tomatoes, and then kind of like <clears throat> compare them uh-huh. and sort of pick the the you know the consensus top twelve to fifteen. Sure. And start there. And if I if I'm not satisfied, then I go beyond and watch more. Okay. Um, but I you know I I think I think as as an audience, you need to start somewhere. Sure. You yeah. know, and I and I think. I think there's so many poor movies being made now, you know, like so many movies <laughs> that are created now have so little value, you know, like even like, yeah. so uh, I was a big fan of the, the Jason Bourne movies um, when they started coming out. I was like, these are really interesting, you know, kind of smarter than your average bear spy movies. Yeah. And then the most recent one, I was like, this is really terrible. What happened with this movie? And like the more I looked into it, there's this big New York times article about it. And it was how, it had originally been scripted a certain way, and as they made the film, they found that it couldn't play in China. There was just too much going on. It was too complicated. So they, they cut it down, and, and by the end, uh, you know, the Jason Bourne character has like 15 lines of dialogue. And you're like, well, at some point, this is no longer like an intellectual exercise. Like oh, at some right. point, this is simply me watching things explode. Right, yeah. <laughs> which which I think the majority of these movies now, really, the big budget ones, really feel that way. You know, and I think the small ones get ignored, and I think that maybe Rotten Tomatoes can help some of that. I don't, I'm not convinced that the internet's doing a very good job helping society, but maybe that's the type of thing that it could work at. I, I like the fact that um, in your Veronica Mars, Veronica Mars, that's wrong. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I like I mean, the Veronica fact. Veronica Mars is all right, too. Yeah, yeah, sure. <laughs> I like the fact in your Veronica Lake example, you'd end up more with, um, naturally, uh, with uh, Sullivan's Travels, and not the uh, right. monster movie that she was in, which was like her last film. I don't remember the title right That's now. That's right. Um, That's but, right. That's right. Exactly. But my uh, my uh, contention, or I guess my concern with that, is so many times now um, you're not necessarily getting a historical view of what those uh, how those movies right. are perceived, because most of those reviews, you know, the top reviewers are just you know blog guys. You know, you're not That's finding right. out who um, who liked or didn't like the film at the time. And it took some digging, but I did find some contemporary reviews of this film, which I'll talk about a little later. Oh, funny. Yeah. Oh, that's funny. Yeah, that's great. I mean, I found so little about this movie. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I just ended up watching it two or three times. Yeah, yeah, right. right. I got too. a sense of it. Yeah. Well, this movie has uh, no Rotten Tomato rating. Uh, or a Metacritic rating, but it is 6.3 on IMDb. And I'm reaching into uh, untrod territory here, but it's got a 4 out of 5 stars for its Amazon product rating, and it's got a, a 6.7 out of 10 on Letterboxd as well. There, there you go. Yeah. So that's so not bad. I mean, I, I do think audiences who find this movie, who know what they're looking for, right? I think I think can really enjoy it. Like, it is the type of movie that um, – fine performances right like i think stacy keats really gives it his all yes he's really he's really really great in it you know mariana hill i think is is really lovable like she's a really lovely person like if um have you seen medium cool oh my uh, god medium cool is on my list of why haven't i seen this yet uh films but oh, i definitely want to really, see really really great film it's yeah. a really great but she plays sort of the girlfriend in yeah. medium cool at the beginning like she's not the girlfriend at the end but the, what, the girl he's with at, near the beginning of the film and there's a great scene with her like kind of running around the apartment naked with him and and i and and, and she just has this way of creating like a natural sense of calm on yeah. screen right like you really trust that like she's in this character she is in one of my favorite uh star trek uh, episodes of the original series <laughs> the dagger of the oh Mind. wow yeah Oh, I didn't know that. That's great. I knew I, I saw that she was on a ton of television. I mean, she's also in Twilight Zone, and she's in right, right, yeah, you know, a huge amount of things. And uh, um, Medium Cool was directed by um, Haskell Wexler, right? Haskell Wexler, yeah, yeah, famous cinematographer. Yeah, it's a great, great movie. It's a really great movie, and it's oh, get beautifully <laughs> shot. Um, but yeah, she's also like in High Plains Drifter and yeah. Messiah of Evil, and she's in a lot of really great stuff. But she has, like, I think her her performance. I think adds a lot of weight to that character too, because uh, as you watch the film, she really, to survive, she sort of has to play the, like, whatever will make me survive this moment is what I'll do. Right. Right. Like she, she like from situation to situation, she is going to find a way to survive. And it's not about like whether or not something is right or wrong or moral or immoral or ir- out of character. It's simply in this situation, if I, seduce this person who has power i will then survive right 
and I think, it, and, and or you know, or in this situation, I'm going to steal a truck, yeah. whether or not I <laughs> abandon the person who broke me out of prison. Uh, yeah, you know, and, and I think, I think, I think that that's just so, for me at least, like it's just so refreshing to see a character that is simply driven to one thing. Yeah. And you don't have to see her as one way or the other or, you know, this kind of person. Or, right. And, 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 and in a film like this where, you know, it's very clear that there is no moral authority. Like normally I right. think in a film like this you'd have, you know, the, the preacher or something in town would, you know, be the That's upstanding right. guy or something. The closest That's we get right. to and that. Then, and also, yeah, and then there'd also be some type of subtext about how, yeah. you know, capital punishment is – you know, yeah, right. So yeah. And so and, yeah, I think the closest exactly. that we get in this is, you know, Jimmy, um, Bud Court's uh, character, who by mm-hmm. the end of the film has gone the complete opposite way and is now like the tar- totally heartless executioner. So to have somebody that's like right. Mariana Hill's character who she's that's the most that's the virtue that we can understand, like survival. We don't care what she did. We don't really care how yes. she does it. She's just trying to stay alive and also not be victimized right. by <laughs> the horrible guards in this prison. That's right. No, that's exactly right. And and you've got the Stacey Keach character who is, you know, like you're sort of rooting for him at times. <laughs> right. You know, and then at other times you're like, this guy's a horrible person. Like yeah. <laughs> he cheats. He cheats at, at gambling. He tries to rip off the bank. He ends up shooting someone. He's like whoring. He's this, you know, like it's sort of like, but you're still kind of like, maybe he's the protagonist that I'm behind. <laughs> I'm not sure. <laughs> He's, you know, like it's, yeah. It's, it's, he's the least bad in this horrible universe, <laughs> or at least, yes. or at least, at least, are the, uh, the most interesting. Maybe the most interesting is the that's that's the virtue that an audience can get it behind in a film like this. Yes, yeah, that's right. Well, and and in the end, I mean, I do, I do feel that he has fallen for her in some way. Right. So, so I guess we should say. So, what happens is he meets her, and he sort of immediately falls for her, mm-hmm. and sort of from then on plans to not execute her. Like his his whole his whole idea after that point is how do I somehow not kill this person and get her out? Yeah. And so he tries the idea of perhaps lightly ex- like electrocuting her and then reviving her with adrenaline. Yeah. And uh, you know, and then just breaking her out or whatever. And it's and and I do think like so. Do you give spoilers on this show or? Uh yeah yeah we do. Yes. Okay. So this will be spoilers. So. You know, I think I think the ending of the film. So he finally gets really desperate. He goes to the bank. He has to get money to pay the doctor. So the doctor will say she's dead, draw her out and give her adrenaline. Right. He gets to the point where he's so desperate for this that he goes to the bank and asks for a loan. They refuse the loan. There's kind of a misunderstanding. He ends up taking the guard's gun and shooting him and then just goes off the rails. Yeah. Uh, Breaks her out of prison, whatever. Eventually, what happens is the executioner has his head shaved and is walked to the electric chair. Um, and in the, in this very 1970s poetic, you know, the executioner <laughs> is going to be executed. Right. Um, and, 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 I, you know, it goes over the top a little bit. And I think that's probably a fault of the filmmaker not feeling as if the film is maybe strong enough. Right. To draw, you know, like, because I, I think I think if you were going to make this film and really make it, you know, as as a as a great film, I don't know that you'd necessarily have the prison explode <laughs> right. because the the electric chair has got caught on fire and then caught the gas and then it explodes. Right. Um, well, a so lot of some of that a, was some of that was driven by uh, events in the real world. Um, they did film it in the recent uh, recently closed Kilby prison in Alabama and at part of the agreement with the state to get the rights to film in the prison was that they had to blow it up at the end. And so <laughs> part of the <laughs> pyrotechnics Amazing. were used uh you know during the film uh and then they also Amazing. they would do a demo after but the, the fact that um it was a prison meant that the walls were so thick that they weren't actually able to destroy it fully and the um, the sort of remnants <laughs> stood around for years after filming. <laughs> amazing yeah i think it's just so funny how ridiculous these these like 
productions were at the time. Like, how un- unsafe is it to blow up a giant stone prison? Oh, right, yeah. It. <laughs> it's great. And I'm sure when uh, when uh, Jack Smite uh, came in, or, or at least uh, the the writer uh, Gary Bateson, like, there's probably no exploding uh, prison in his script, and they're probably like, right. uh, could we blow up the prison? Oh, yeah, sure, well, we'll just do that instead. Yeah. Why not? I mean, at this point, why not? <laughs> yeah, good way to go. Um, but you know, I, I think I think the, the the great thing about that too is it it is it's a really like impressive moment to see the prison explode. Yeah. I mean, I'm I was like, that's kind of great. <laughs> uh, it doesn't. I, I think I think in some ways it cheapens the ending, but it's still kind of great. Um, what I didn't understand after that is then you see the the executioner kind of driving the truck again. Right, and it looks like the same prison, and I'm like, I don't know, did, did was it not that big a deal to have half your prison explode and the guy electrocute? Like, can you get more work after you do that? I'm not. All right, I Whatever guess you so. Do, man. I guess you can. <laughs> guess I guess so. Um, yeah, I, I think I think it's also worth talking about when you talk about Stacey Keach's performance in this. You know, he's he was a Fulbright scholar. Right. Um, you know, he was he was sort of like the preeminent American on Shakespeare. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, he's sort of always been seen as this like brilliant, brilliant man who's, who I think, you know, is also really troubled, right? Like, didn't he get it? I feel like I'm trying to remember if this is, if I'm getting the story wrong, but I feel like maybe he was in prison for cocaine smuggling. Um, Yeah. Uh, I don't know if it was smuggling, but yeah, he was busted at Heathrow in like 84 for cocaine. uh Uh-huh. You know, and and I think, I think, you know, the, the thing about, people like him and I think why I find him so fascinating is like the troubled man plays into each character that he's doing. Yeah. And each character that he's doing is so complicated. You know, you watch fat city and as you watch him be this character, you really, you can hurt with him, but you can also be terrified of him. Right. Like you're also like, you're also a really scary person. Like I, you know, I find you very unsettling, but I also, find you endearing at the same time, you know, that, and I, and I think that that's just something that like really brilliant people have, right. They sort of draw you and repel you at the same time. Yeah. And it really works in this film too, because continuing on in the idea of this sort of uh, morally ambivalent kind of world, you don't really know if he's on the level, you know, and if he's going that's to right. try to use um, good and then just like, you know, killer because he right. gets – I think that we can buy that he is um, all in, you know, and he loves her or whatever because he yeah. essentially gets yeah. what you'd think he'd want pretty early on. Like it's – they right. have sex like you right. know, before the halfway right. point in of the prison. film. Yeah, right. Right. And yet you he's, know, and yeah. he, he's still willing to go into, uh, you know, as deep as he does and rob a bank and, and he uh, gets beat up That's after right. the card game. And so we have to believe that he's found something or at least there's just something about her – perhaps specifically that he's willing to really risk it for. You know, that's exactly right. And I think you get the sense that he is unsatisfied Mm. with what he's doing in in some ways, right? He's very proud of it. He's very proud of his work. Right. And he's, his old reliable, it's the name of his chair. He's willing to get killed for that chair. You know, like he, he really believes in it, but I think he's also sensing that perhaps she offers something different. Perhaps okay. she offers some kind of life that's not about execution. And right. it's not just about giant meals. Yeah. And, you know, like he, he kind of goes through all the sins, right? He's got his gluttony and his his lust and it's like he but like there's something about her that draws out a virtue in him. That's interesting. That he's willing to do evil to do good and you know, it's just very it, it it's the type of thing that is very hard to get into unless you're thinking about America nineteen seventy we feel we've lost our soul. Sure. Yeah. You know, Vietnam has Vietnam has made us question all of it. Right. And and whether or not American exceptionalism matters at all. Right. And you know what could make us feel whole again? And you know it's it's a very searching time. And I think you watch films from this time period, and you really get that sense. Yeah, that's a really great viewpoint. Um, I also thought that um, I had the thought that it's not. What you'd think, it's not really, I don't think, a commentary on the um, death penalty and capital punishment necessarily. Mm. I think it, a man, mm-hmm. a man explodes a prison at the end. Like, I, definitely this yes, movie yes. is like anti-death penalty. But I think it's almost yes. exploring the um, the showman's uh, sort of lifestyle yeah. uh, because Jonas right. uh, is a former um, carny. And so you see him, he's got this 
speech that he gives and he takes pride in the fact that it puts the prisoners at rest and then like you said he's stuffing his face afterwards it's not like he had a religious yeah. experience and then we get that right. sort of duality where it flips around at the end and he's experiencing it now and he's it's sort of like his last show you know it's like this is it the curtain exactly. goes down after this that's exactly right no that's a really interesting point and it's and you do get the sense that for him it's all a giant performance yeah right you know you know and, and he's in front of an audience and he he gives his giant monologue and it does, you know, it really, and in some ways, like it, as a viewer, you're also like, this is, this is amazing. Like his, <laughs> his whole getup is really fascinating, Yeah, you know, and, and at the end of the film, he gives it to himself, right? Like he gives his own monologue to himself as he's about to be executed. Yeah. Right. And, and it literally blows up in his face. Like, <laughs> yeah. but you know, there's, but so there's, you know, I'm not, and, it, and it, the, end, the thing I love about it is I don't quite know what to make of their point, right? I'm not quite sure what point they're making, right? And if they make it, if it's that successful, but in some ways I don't think it matters. Oh no! You know, in some in some ways you walk you like walk away from it being like, huh? <laughs> like, <what? laughs> all right. Now I have to sit with that. Now I have to see how I'll feel about that in a few days when I start thinking of something and I realize it's caused by that you know right yeah <laughs> which i which i think is, is is really great filmmaking like and not that this is a really great film it's got lots of flaws but by leaving you with something that you have to wrestle with yeah it, even if you don't know you're doing that yeah exactly and it, in that sort of portrayal it, it kind of reminds me of like a darker music man like if sure. uh, like harold, harold yeah. hill had brought a electric yeah. chair to river city um because you right. sort of explore that same idea of like a con man and, and his uh, and his intentions and, and him changing. I'd ha this is based, I'd have to guess, uh, or at least adapted from the story of a guy named Jimmy Thompson, who was a traveling executioner for the state of Mississippi in the 40s. Um, wow. I actually found an old Life article about him. They wouldn't have had the technology to do this in 1918. That's an invention. Sure. But um, sure. hanging in the um, early part of the 20th century was really facing controversy, mainly for the fact that it was often not done very well, and the uh, condemned yeah. suffered a lot. And so the Mississippi legislature passed a bill to have a portable electric chair constructed. And so they get this guy, Jimmy Thompson. Who's described? Uh, yeah, who's described in the article as uh, an ex-sailor, marine, a carnival man. Uh, he was a hypnotist. He went by the name Doctor Zog. Uh, that was his like oh his stage God. name. Yeah, and so he was hired to perform the executions. And he's actually quoted as saying um, about the first man that he put to death uh, that the man died uh, quote with tears in his eyes for the efficient care I took to give him a good clean burning end quote. And wow. he was paid. I mean, he was paid a hundred bucks per execution. I mean, it's exactly like Jonas Kendi. Yeah, right. Like, I mean, that sounds exactly like this character that they put on screen. That's fascinating. Yeah. Well, and and it's interesting. Like, did you ever see the? Um, well, I don't want to get too far off here, but the <laughs> the Errol Morris documentary, um, Mr. Death. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and and it, it's fascinating. These people who are who are doing this terrible thing, right? This they're the people who are willing to step in and pull the lever, right? They're very strange. You know, like you have to be a very strange human being right. to choose this as your profession. Yeah, you know? but, and, but they have like a conviction. And what we get from Jonas that like he has none. Like he's right. he's That's a guy. Right. He's a former convict. And Jimmy Thompson That's was right. in real life as well. And he gets this yeah. position that at least for him is probably he can't even get yeah. a bank loan. So this is about as much status as he's going to get. And so he's That's just right. riding this until the next thing comes along. You know, it's, right. it's not like he's Dr. Kevorkian and he's got like a real conviction that's about right. people's right to die. No, yeah, yeah. No, that's exactly right. Yeah, it's wild. It's just it's just a wild and it's a wild thing to think of putting yourself in his shoes, too. Right. Like you're following him as a character. Yeah. And, you know, and, and, and you can't help but think, like, what would I do? Huh. Like if, you know, like, would I be that guy? Yeah, that's crazy. <laughs> you know? And and I, and I, just, I really like that. I like that sense of. You know, uh, Ebert always talked about it being an empathy machine, right? Like it, you're forced right, right. into somebody else's shoes for an hour and a half. And I really like that. Yeah, I feel really bad for him, but also I'm really impressed by um, – you talked about yeah. the speeches at the beginning and the end, but I really love yeah. the bank scene where yes. 
it, if this was a um, a heist movie, this would be the point where the guy is like trying to crack the safe and he's hanging from a thing uh-huh. and like sweat's coming down uh-huh. his brow. And you never see it from uh, Keech's Jonas because he knows that he has to succeed here or this is all yeah. shot. And so he That's gives right. a whole speech and he brings patriotism in it. And he's like, you know, well, we, we, we yeah. go kill the Hun and, and let's get That's some right. war bonds. And he's trying to, everybody's, you know, applauding right. and he thinks he's got it. And then That's of course right. he doesn't. That's right. And again, he's performing, right? Like right. You're yeah. saying like it's, for him, it's all about the performance, yeah. the next performance. Yeah, it's really, really fascinating. Well, the script has an interesting story. Um, it was written by uh, this guy, Gary Bateson, who, as far as I can tell, never really wrote anything else. He wrote an episode of Mission Impossible, and I think he wrote a night gallery, and that's about it. And he was, a, uh, he was working his way through USC, and he wrote the screenplay as a project, a class project. And his uh, instructor, uh, a guy named Howard Rodman, uh, was so impressed with the script that he's like, and I don't know how often this happens at film school, I'm guessing not very often, but he's like, we got to get this out there. And so he basically shopped it around until uh, Jack Smite, the producer and director of this film, um, took an interest in it and got it rolling. It's so great. It's such a great story. Yeah. And And you do get the sense, I mean, this is definitely a film written by somebody who has not been in the system very long. Right, right. Right, like, right, because because he because the conventions are missing, and I think I think that's the thing about the new Hollywood of the '70s in general is, you know, a film from Hollywood from the 1930s to the 1960s uh, would have had a character that you are on board with that you're rooting for, right, uh, and it would have had an ending that felt as if you'd reached a moral, right, like it would have the sense of. And here's what you take from this movie. Right. Right. Like, um, and I, and I think, you know, this, it's just so interesting to, to hear too, that like, you know, it's a film student. Well, of course it is. You know? yeah, <laughs> like yeah. <laughs> everything being made in the seventies was, you know, Coppola and Lucas and all these guys, these guys were all 20, Yeah. you know, and they were just, they were fresh, full of ideas, you know, and these ideas did not conform to the way things had come before. Yeah. I think that that's a good point about him being a student. And I think that it you get half of it is, uh, like you said, he's willing to do stuff and not use convention or hasn't, you know, been have those mm-hmm. conventions beat into him. And then there's a couple of things about it that are kind of immature and sort of the sort yeah. of thing you'd get from a student. Like the fact that blowing Jonas up, is, the, the, <laughs> blowing yeah. up the, the prison. Yeah. Uh, the yeah. fact that Jonas is uh, last name is is Candide, which I'm just I'm yeah. just guessing is a reference to Voltaire's Candide. Yeah. Um, yes. Yeah. No, there's, there's definitely, and, and you do feel very much like this is a guy who's got lots and lots of good ideas. Oh yeah. Yeah. Sure. And he's not quite there yet. Right. Like he's kind of, yeah, he's taking a chance and he's throwing it out there and he's being totally honest. And by doing that, he's also showing how you're right. It's not it's quite earnest. mature yet. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 And that, but of course didn't really go on to anything. So I don't really know the story right. there. Yeah. And, and I'm, and I'm sure some of it too, is that, you know, it's the type of film that it didn't perform well and never found yeah. an audience. It was slightly too weird. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and you've got, you know, the director, on the other hand, you know, you've got Jack Smite, who, you know, does all kinds of work. Oh, yeah. You know, before and after this. And, and it's sort of like the, the reliable studio guy, the utility guy you call. Right. When you've got a film to make. Yeah. Right. Um, and probably not the right fit for this movie. Like, I think he does just. I think he does just a fine job. Like the film itself, yeah, oh, sure. looks good. Yeah, plots well, works well. The 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 direction of the actors is really great. Yeah, but there's but there's very little style to it, right? Yeah, and I think I think I think a an innovative script takes an innovative director to really make it something that gets remembered yeah it's hard right? to, it's hard to know what to say about Jack Smite, uh, who was a Minnesota native himself. Um, he went to Southwest High School. Did he really? Yeah, with uh, Peter Graves that's, back in the day. Yeah, that's, that's fascinating. I knew I knew that he was at the U of M and stuff, but I, yeah, yeah, that's great. Um, but it's hard to get an idea of his uh, oeuvre, really, or like his career, because yeah. um, he's yeah. kind of all over the map. Um, I think his mm-hmm. first movie was like a like a Ross Hunter movie uh, right. with uh, Sandra D, and then yep, then he moves right. on to like he's doing um, like Midway, you know, an Airport seventy five, yeah. and so yeah, yeah, he's definitely one of those yeah. guys who I think, like you said, was probably got the uh, a reputation as being reliable. It's like, well, call in so and so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We've got this little film we want to make. Yeah, called Jack. 
Jack, Jack can put it together. The Guardian's obituary of him when he died in 2003 actually starts off, uh, in these days when every hack director considers themselves an auteur, it's refreshing to find that Jack Smite had no such pretensions. That's right. Which is like, wow, that's backhanded, forehanded, and backhanded again as far as a compliment that's, goes. That's right. No, that's right. And, and you know, I do, think, I do think he probably took a lot of pride in that, right? Oh, sure. He's like, I'm not an auteur. I'm, I'm a worksman. Right. I go out and I... I do the work, and the work is good, and then I'm proud of it. Yeah. And he should be. You know, Midway's a fine film, and I think Airport 1975 is a great film. Yeah. You know, he definitely is, and he and he did a bunch of, like, Twilight Zone, and I'm a huge yes. fan of that stuff. Yes. And he did, like, he was, he was a part of a generation that, like, if you could make a movie solid that works and the pacing is well, the like, pacing is good, great. Mm. You know, and I think he was very good at that, and I think a bunch of movies – would be worse without him. Oh, sure. I think I think this film to me seems like it's paired sort of weirdly with him, right? Like, yeah, maybe to... it's kind of a straightforward. Yeah, you make a movie, you know, and this <laughs> yeah, is right. more like yeah. a, you know, I mean, if you if you imagine somebody like, you know, looking at this film as as sort of an outsider. Right, rather than as a as a Hollywood regular. Yeah, I'm trying to think of like like an Altman on this or, or something like that. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. You put John Cassavetes on this. Film. Oh, sure. You know, and it and it turns into something much stranger and much bigger and much more influential and remembered. You yeah. know, and I think I'm guessing the script was flawed enough that none of those guys wanted to do it. Okay. You know, they yeah. wanted to do their own work. But I but I do wonder some like the last time I watched it, I kept thinking like, man, if this had been done by somebody with like more of an independent voice, it'd be interesting to see what it would have been. Yeah. You know, or if the studio would have would have sat on it for a little while and you know, brought in somebody who was a little more established. That was still a really interesting idea. And it's interesting. To I, think, it's interesting to think what was going through Smite's head too, because it's you know, like you said, it's not really a conventional pick. And so, was he trying mm-hmm. to sort of slot himself into the avant-garde uh, mainstream, right. if you will, or did he think, um, yeah, this would be a you know kind of a weird movie to do? Yeah, yeah, I wonder that too. And I wonder too, like you know, Hollywood works in a weird, in weird ways. I wonder if this is the type of movie where he's like, you know. I do so and so the favor of making this movie, yeah, okay. and I make it. I make it. You know, I make it really good, and I make it really solid. Yeah, and it's exactly what they're looking for. And then they give me, you know, the next year's movie, TV movies. You know, which are sure. like at the time kind of a big deal. Yeah, yeah. You know, or or I get to do. You know, they call me when they want to do Airport 1975. <laughs> right. Yeah, I'm sure you got paid for you that. You know. Yeah. <laughs> um. And so and so you know they. It's not as if to it. It doesn't feel exactly like a workman's movie. You get your sense of that when it's tedious. This movie doesn't feel tedious at no, all. No, it doesn't. It moves really well. It's like, but it um, it does it does miss a little bit of that interesting 1970s um, look to it a little bit. Like it's got the grain of 1960s films, right? Like he's not using the Fuji film that like really picks up the grain that would become super popular with like electric light and blue. And it, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't have that look to it, but it's a really, really neat movie. Um, and I'm really glad I saw it. You know, I'm really glad that, that it's, it's the type of thing that like, I'm hoping it, it, it has the opportunity to be discovered a little, I think with everything now coming out on Blu-ray. Yeah. And this only came out on DVD like a couple of years ago. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. I'm hoping that it kind of gets some kind of, second chance but i guess maybe that's my responsibility at the trial and to offer it back. sure yeah though i though i fear movies like this because this is the type of movie that i would champion <laughs> and it would do really poorly you know and then i'd be like oh this is my thing i pushed for this so hard so if you get successful enough you could have like your own sort of midnight movie which is like the really obscure film that you know you're not sure yeah. anybody's gonna see I- you know you know like to me so so my my strategy lately has been when there's a film like this that I'm not sure how to sell. I often look at it and I'm like, how can I pair it in a double feature with something people will come to? Sure. Right? Like I got to hunt down another movie that would sort of make sense with this and make this the late movie. Uh-huh. And then, and then maybe you sell a, a $12 ticket so that you can stay for the traveling executioner for only $4. Sure. Right? Like, and then maybe people stay and then, you know, of the 20 people that see it, maybe five really dig it. Like, <laughs> yeah. And, and that's, that's sort of the win on a movie like this. Right? Uh, like, Harold Maud, make it a Bud yeah. Court double feature. I like that. That's really a fun idea. Though, I don't know if Harold Maud fans 
how Aspie fans are going to dig this, but that would be really that's <laughs> well, a fun yeah. idea. I like it. Yeah. I'm going to stick with it. You know, I thought about, I thought about that with Mariana Hill too. Like, oh. it'd be interesting to to do yeah, something. Yeah, get your hands like, on a print of Medium Cool. You let me know. <laughs> yeah, well, well, exactly. Or like, you know, the other thought I had is, um, what's the western she's in? Um, El Condor. Uh, no, she's in. Um, shoot, I wrote it down. She's in High Plains Drifter. Oh yeah, right. Of course. You know, so like if and she sort of plays a similar character. Like it could be like kind of an interesting like Mariana Hill double or something. So anyway, yeah, um, that's that. I think that's the only way I can picture it coming is if I can somehow find a way to work it into like you saw this one and you liked it. You should stay another two hours. <laughs> right. Yeah. You know. Um, the quirky, amoral Western is something that has definitely disappeared, but I think Quentin Tarantino yeah. is doing his damnedest to bring it back. Yeah, he's working He's working as hard as he can at it. I think, I think it's the type of thing that could... Um, it, deserves, it deserves a second running around, you know, I think. Sure. Especially in the times we're in now, the, you know, the idea that when Nixon is in full Watergate swing... <laughs> that the most popular movies around would be these movies from Italy that take place a hundred years in our past. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, you know, I think, I think that's an interesting way of like getting at what's happening now by looking back and be like, well, what makes sense? You know? Right. Like, does, like now, now it's just, it's fascinating. Like I, I was watching, I was thinking about doing an Eastwood series. And so I was rewatching dirty Harry. Okay. And it's amazing now when you watch a movie like that, that you're like a policeman executing prisoners without due process uh-huh. is now a horrifying prospect because it's an everyday occurrence that's in public attention. Yeah. Uh, so Dirty Harry feels very different now because it doesn't feel heroic. Yeah. Right? Like at the time, you're rooting for Harry, right? right. Like, I mean, he's if, dirty, the, but he's the hero. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, and you think that's what it takes, right? Like you're like, you know what it takes to get the bad guy? You can't trust the justice system. You can't right. trust politicians. You can't trust the American way yeah. because it's failed us. The only way to do it is good old fashioned, you know, one-on-one justice, yeah. like the right. Western. Yeah. You know, and I, and I think now that feels like, ugh, yikes. <laughs> oh yeah. Absolutely. And not, and not, you know, not that it's not fascinating, like watching that and watching death, Wish, and I still love those movies. I think they're oh, really sure. great movies yeah. and they really dig into like, our sense of frustration with a system that's broken. But, you know, it is, it's interesting thinking about those movies, like how, how do they play now with audiences? Well, I don't know. I mean, you've got a movie like Hateful Eight where you've right. got, um, I think there's a lot of similarities to this. You've got a character who is condemned yeah. and is being brought in who you become sort of um, sympathetic to because she's getting wailed right. on by Kurt Russell, but she's that's also right. a terrible terrible human being and she is summar- right. spoilers for hateful eight she's summarily executed at the end of the film and the right. film in as much as it plays anything as good or bad is you're supposed to feel kind of good about that i think it just puts it puts us as a society i think that we're like we go through these crossroads moments right sure like my history professor would always talk about how 1968 was this this moment in american history where we were at a crossroads <laughs> we had to think about like, what is it exactly that makes us American? Yeah. What is it that makes us good? What is it that makes us bad? What are we proud of it? Are we not? You know, and in that year you had all these assassinations and you had, and I think that like the last few years feels really similar, right? Like we're at this point where we're like, well, what are we? Yeah. Are we, are we, is American being white? Is American being, uh, you know, uh, a person who intervenes across the world to stop horrible things happening, or is an American being an inter, you know, like it's sort of like we have so many questions yeah. now, but what does this mean? We're still asking those questions. I mean, from totally. 69, 70 till now. Totally. And I, and I, and I, I think some of that is the reason I'm so attracted to these American films from the 1970s. Yeah. But some of them also bring up these really horrible, horrible questions again that you're like, I don't want to ask that question. Like, <laughs> yeah, you know, like that's really a hard, hard question. Like, how do you deal with that? Yeah. Um, Stacey Keats is in another really great movie called the new centurions. Yeah. And it's about, it's about policemen in LA and it's about, you know, learning the day, like day to day beat and all this. And, and it, 
it brings up the same question that's sort of like, what is justice? You know, like, right. as a policeman, when is the right thing to do to shoot this person? When is the right thing? You know, and it's, and it's just an interesting time where it's like it's very everything is politicized, right? Like everything is politi- the, the idea of the police is a super political idea yeah. again. And it, and I don't think it was, you know, through Reagan's America. Why do you I don't th- think that that question was up. Yeah. Well, that's for sure. Why do you think that this then sort of got lost um in history? You mean like the uh, the the traveling executioner? Yeah. Um you know, I think it's a type of film where it was flawed enough that you know, people could write it off critically, okay. right? Like, like the, I think the criticisms would have been, you know, it's, it's an okay film. It's not amazing. You know, maybe, maybe you can skip it. Right. So audiences didn't see it. I think the other thing is it came a little early, like 1970 is probably not the prime for this film. You know, I think 1976 is a very different time than 1970. And I, and I think, I think this kind of story with, these kind of characters probably play a little better late seventies than they do early seventies. You know, like this is right around um, uh, Mash and uh, right. Trying to think of what else? Right. Exactly, exactly. So you know, um, you know, you look past Watergate, you look past Texas Chainsaw Massacre, you look past these these stories that are being told about complicated characters and doing the right thing when you're a bad person and all these things. Like I think that's sort of you have to get post long goodbye. You know, like you know, a little bit, like, I think you kind of have to get, cause this feels a little early to me. And I think the other thing is I think it's not being done by an auteur, right? Like people are going to pay attention to the long goodbye because it's Robert Altman. Right. <laughs> um, you know, and after mash, they're like, well, we got an eye on that guy. Yeah. Right. You know, and, this... it, and it's the type of thing <laughs> that lends credence you know, to my like, theory that Jack Smite was like, Hey, check me out. I'm an auteur. I can do this too. Right. <laughs> right. Right. And I think, I think you're probably right. I think he may have taken this on to be like, Listen, I can take on an offbeat, weird little movie that's got no moral center. <laughs> right. You know, like I can do that. Um, you know, because I think it's it's sort of just existentialist at its core, right? Like it's yeah. it's wandering and it's full of anxiety and oh, it's yeah. full of no point. Um, which I think maybe 1970 is just a little hard on people with that. You know, so. I think I think Mash was funny and it was. Uh, it was really really on point and it was really well done and. You know, I think a flawed film trying to say some of the same things probably doesn't work as well. Yeah, another Bud Court movie, too. Yeah, right, that's right. <laughs> uh, well, like I that's said before, right. uh, it's hard to find anybody uh, but the most obscure movie blogs talking about this picture. But I did manage to find some reviews. God bless uh, the Variety Online Archive, because you can find almost awesome. anything in there. I found yeah. a rather glowing review by somebody who didn't get a credit. It was too long ago, I guess. Uh, but it was fairly uh, praising of the film, and it called out Keach specifically. Here's an excerpt. Quote, a literal description of the story does injustice to the whole. There are some gritty elements and some broad comedy elements, earthy enough to anchor the story in its proper context. End quote. That's excellent. Yeah, that's yeah, very that's positive. Great. That's right on. Positive yeah, review. Yeah, that's right on. Uh, here's one from the Colorado Springs Gazette, which I am positive does not exist anymore as an institution. <laughs> Uh, quote, the traveling executioner is a celebration of black comedy and sardonic humor, which also takes a jab at the tradition of capital punishment, end quote. Yeah. I mean, those are both, I mean, you know, it's the type of thing too, where like, again, you read those, you're like, those are, those are, you know, nice reviews. Yeah. It might be a faint praise, a damning with faint praise situation. Yeah. 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 And I don't think would draw anybody to the theater. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You know, um, uh, you know, I think it's the type of thing that like. When I ask people about it, even now, people who know movies really, really well, they have no idea what I'm talking about. <laughs> right. And I'll, I'll say, well, it's got Stacey Keach. And they're like, oh, I love Stacey Keach. And I'm like, yeah, well, you should see you should know You should know this movie, yeah. Yeah, yeah. You know, like one of my friends, his, um, his all-time favorite movie is Fat City. And so okay. he brings it up occasionally. And, and I'm always like, man, you've got to see this other movie. It's really cool. And it's, <laughs> it's not Fat City level. Like, it's not, right. it's not on that level, but it's good. Yeah, it's it's the type of movie that I always want to champion. I I always like to champion these movies that probably don't deserve it quite as much as I push. Sure. Right? Like it's <laughs> it's 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 really fun and it's really good, but it's not great. 
Yeah. <laughs> you know? Right, which could uh, backfire like, it could backfire when you're trying to get somebody in uh who's yeah. not necessarily an obscure film fan and so they're gonna expect to be right. totally blown away. Whereas if you've got your right. if you've got your obscure film fan hat on, you know, all right, I'm gonna see I'm gonna yeah. glean what I what I can, the good stuff out of this. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. yeah. And you really have to I think I think you know that idea of knowing what you're in for. You're right. Is always is always a good idea when you go into a film like this. Yeah, it's not a great film to see blind. I don't think. No, you know, I think, no, I don't sort think of, so. Um, you know where where, you know, I, I saw Electric Light in Blue for the first time like three years ago, uh-huh. and it's the type of movie that I can't stop talking about and I can't stop recommending to people because it isn't. I don't see any problems with it. Right. Like the more I watch it, the more I'm like this perfect like it's absolutely perfect um but you know like it's but again like in some ways you have to let people know what's what they're in for yeah uh even then because it's you know some of these especially especially the smaller films from uh from the 1970s 1960s and even 1980s uh really can be challenging as an audience member who doesn't regularly watch them yeah because they have a very different personality to them. Yeah. You know, like like they're very they're much less produced, they're much less Oh yeah, put right. Together, yeah. You know? Um this film was adapted into a musical in 1993 called The Fields of Ambrosia and wow. I can see that actually. I think that oh, yeah. uh, the scenes like the bank scene or the his yeah. his speech uh would totally yeah. give themselves to being expressed in song. Oh yeah, that sounds. I mean, that sounds actually really great. Like, I totally watched that. And um, actually, there's uh, the Independent uh, reviewed the musical. I'm really searching for reviews here, and they called it uh, <laughs> they called it a reprehensibly enjoyable new musical. There we go. Oh, I like that. And That's also, nice. uh, it's often very funny in its own right, and the show has a number of moments where it seems to be tone deaf to its own ridiculousness. And it's like, yeah, I think that kind of applies to the film yeah. as well. Yeah, yeah, no doubt. No, that's, that's almost exactly perfectly made. <laughs> so I think yeah, it's, that's, that sounds excellent. I think it's safe to say that this is a uh, full recommendation from you. Yes, yeah, I think I think you should definitely see it. I think um, you see it knowing full well what you're getting into. Right. It's not an American classic. It's not going to be in your top 100 films of all time, but it is. Um, it's a unique experience that I think if you love cinema. You're always looking for. You're always looking for something yeah. different, right? Yeah. You don't. You don't. You, what you're not looking for is mediocre. Yeah. Right. When you really love cinema, that's the enemy of any cinema lover is mediocre movies, and it's not. No. It's not mediocre. No, it's not. It's got a guy who's uh, strapped into an ele- uh, electric chair talking about the fields of ambrosia and the Greeks and yeah. Hamlet, <laughs> and that's yes, tough. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Well, I think that's it for this show. Uh, thanks for joining us, listeners. If you want to let us know how you felt about this movie, you can tell us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash craft to services. We're also on Twitter at, and catch this, craft to service, at craft to service, no S. We're also on Apple Podcasts. Uh, you can search for craft to services and subscribe, rate, and review us. It helps out a lot. We're also on Google Play, Stitcher, all those places. Uh, John, where can people find you online? Uh, you can go to trylon.org. That's T R Y. L-O-N dot O-R-G for the Trilon. Uh, if you want to just contact me personally, you can also do that. It's John M at Trilon dot org. Perfect. Well, this has been great. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you so much. It was really fun. And the credits are rolling. This is Aaron for John saying, keep it real. Keep it real.